Drive by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello and welcome. This is season four, episode 15 of Drive by Cinema. This is my co-host, Paul. And this is my unscripted co-host, Richard. And because we don't have a live a video stream, you don't know if we're sitting here with beatific smiles whilst we say this, or grimacing horrifically. Like demons. Like demons. Because they all do that, don't they? Radio, LBC, BBC, Politics Talk. They've all got a camera. A live stream. Live yes. stream. They make television out of what is essentially radio shows and podcasts. We can do that too, you know. We can do that. Podbean allows you to do video broadcasts, well, I think. Should Sorry, you had a question, Richard. I interrupted. I was about to move straight into what is increasingly becoming our Partridge-esque regular feature, Pan News. Oh, change of ministerial duties in the Conservative administration. We can deal with that very quickly, can't we? Stop so, just, oh, come on. It's just beyond pantomime now, isn't it? Surely. Suella Braverman, just, crazy, crazy. Yeah. Crazy right Batwoman, wing. yeah. Okay, choose the head. She's out. Perhaps, she's out. Allegedly. But... I mean, she's only out because she's trying to queue herself up to be leader someday. No, she would be in if she wasn't trying to kill, the, you know, the, the honcho, head honcho. Yeah. Back in is <laughs> is world-renowned winner and expert planner David Cameron. <laughs> the man who fought so hard to stay in Europe for us. Thank you, David. They have to give him a lordship to make him a minister, of course. They that's, did. That's quite an, a throwback to a... a, a previous period isn't it technically i don't think they do they can actually invite anybody into the government it's just you know true just part of ministerial code isn't it which some people seem to ignore anyway so yeah it's something to do with being accountable to the part to parliament isn't it i think something like that which they cannot they can ignore it seems summarily or it will at times but But no politics aside paul what were you going to talk about news i was going to talk about pan news again Oh, fuck, yeah. Okay, a regular little sort of dig at which magazine's business. Okay, yeah. Side note, I'm currently listening to, on Audible, Alan Partridge's latest book. I think it's called Big Beacon or something. Does he review pans like we do? No, but I cringe every other (laughs) chapter because it just sounds like like our podcast. (laughs) Okay, well, that's kind of what we're aiming for, sort of. I guess, yeah, absolutely. He's gone all the way around parody. It's a horseshoe effect now. He's now a loved broadcaster, I think. That's it. I mean, people love the the, the homely, homily, (laughs) mistake-laden aspects of his production, don't they? Well, now Richard Madeley is Alan Partridge, and Alan Partridge is Richard Madeley kind of thing. Yes. <laughs> wow. Because, I, I mean, I, I was never really sure what, what Alan Partridge was based on. Then you remind him, actually, he was based on a sportscaster, wasn't he? A, news, a sports newscaster. But I think the parallels with Richard Madeley are strong, aren't they? The Partridge is strong within this one, isn't it? <laughs> so, look, pan news, genuinely, though. Yes. You bought a new pan? No, I haven't bought a new pan. I don't need one yet. I just... They are wearing out quicker than I Insert to all listeners, Richard has had a broken oven for two and a half years, if that signifies. No, I've got that. I've replaced my oven. You never told I me, re- Richard. I feel like I feel like I'm jettisoned <laughs> here in your friendship zone. <laughs> anyway, sorry, on to your Pam review. Da, 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 da. <laughs> no, no. You and I, Before you we hit me on are, the head with it. we're non-stick Teflon. We are non-stickers, yeah. One time guest, perhaps several time guest, Jolian. and frequent listener Jolian, had a chat with him about And he's a skillet usage. man. Oh, he's stainless steel or cast iron. Is he American skillet or traditional British copper and thingy skillet? He was very clear on never non-stick. He was very dismissive of the whole non-stick thing. He even demonstrated his pan in use at the time he was cooking, I think. Video vlogging? Well, no, he showed me pictures. Now, the thing is... Was it a fried egg? Was it a fried egg? Because they stick. No, it wasn't egg. They stick. It wasn't egg. That's the litmus test, isn't it? That is the blue ribbon litmus test for, for That's right. stick pans. He was cooking vegan burgers, and they're just not. That's not protein. It's proteins that get stuck, isn't it? Well, it has some protein, obviously, because it's going to be a burger. But it's got quite a low level of protein compared to, say, a beef patty, which is twenty five percent or possibly more protein. I think a vegan burger rocks in at about ten percent. So rather like a pancake, wheat. You know, wheat is about the same level of protein, isn't it? I did a bit more research around the whole pan thing. Go on. Watched a lot of YouTube videos. Did you find about seasoning or not? I did find out it about sounds like seasoning. a bit of gumph to me. Here's the interesting thing. I, I saw several different seasoning techniques. And like quite a lot of this, 
There's a lot of confusing and contradictory messaging. <laughs> I think seasoning will stop it rusting if it's an iron skillet. I do agree with that. The way I saw you're supposed to season an iron skillet is you get some vegetable oil, high smoke point vegetable oil, and you smear it around the inside of your pan yeah. with a paper towel, a thin layer you want. Then you shove it in the oven. That's right, put, yes. Put it up quite high in the oven, really high. As high as you can, 250 or whatever. And then here is the thing that made me pause, and they said to let it polymerize. Yeah, to to release the carcinogens, I think is what they're saying. I, I don't I don't know. It just sounds like word salad to me. Surely polymerized oil would be very sticky on the surface. Well, lipids are already quite long anyway, aren't they? It is possible, but I think you get you get candle wax, don't you, when they polymerize? I mean, roughly speaking, I don't know when they hydrogenate. It doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't make it. Oh, but I God. think. The goal of seasoning a cast iron pan is a bit. Well, slow down. They don't. From... They, they they hydrogenate, don't they? They don't polymerize, do they? No clue. No they clue. saturate. Yeah. Maybe we can get a chemist or a, or a biochemist on. Sorry, Rich. Come on. Stainless steel pans saw chefs who I think these are very common in. These are much shinier, kitchens. aren't they? The shiny ones, stainless steel. Yeah. They were using this technique for seasoning, which is you get your pan really hot with nothing in it. Yeah. So you heat your pan up first. Oh, they said. You want it hot, but not too hot. Oh, one of those a nice annoying... temperature. <laughs> and then you put in your high smoke point oil, oh. and you let it heat up until it starts smoking, and then you cook oh. in it. Also, also some nice car, car, carcinogens formed there. Brilliant. But that, to me, is just how you cook with oil anyway. That's how I cook with oil. <laughs> well, if you in a Chinese, Chinese restaurant, maybe, with you, yielding your wok, you also smoke it, do you, your oil? You make the oil so that it starts giving off... Sort of light, no. smoky vapor. Yeah. No, no, Richard. We wouldn't oh. typically do that in most cooking methods. Oh well, that's how I do it. I mean, if you're if you're doing a steak, definitely you might. Yes, want to do exactly. That. That's what I cook. Yeah, obviously. Because <laughs> you want a nice sear, don't you? You don't want the middle cooked too. You want the outside cooked quickly, the inside kind of warmed. Don't you? The answer to this conundrum is there's no one pan for all circumstances. With it, stainless steel. Cast iron pan, and Jolien's point was you want a heavy bottom pan, mm-hmm. which I think means even cooking, because it means that there's enough, what what do you call it, heat capacity, that when you put your cold thing in it to cook, oh, with you, you don't you don't get a cold spot so badly. So these heavy bottom pans are good for that. But on the other hand, a non-stick pan is very non-stick, and you can cook with almost no oil, or basically no oil. You can cook in a, a front, you can fry an egg. With no oil in a you new can for about pan. three months for lower temperature cooking a nonstick pan very easy to clean as well it's better than the other pans it just is but it doesn't do the searing and the high temperature work as well as and if you leave it empty on the hob maybe a four or a five on your setting for an hour or two hours maybe you probably ruin oh, it yes absolutely you can't yeah quite so. Obviously, stainless steel, cast iron have their uses. So does non-stick. You've ignored the ceramic option here, though, haven't you? Well, ceramic sticks. It sticks badly. That's the end of pan news, Paul. I think it is. that's the end forever, because I think the answer is there's no one answer. You, you choose your pan for the purpose, and if we are cooking non-stick, well, we're, we're good at omelettes and fried eggs. That's just the way it is. So what you're saying is, after you have seasoned your pan, they still stick if they're skillets, yeah? I think that's true. There were lots of other tips about how People you People are prepared to lie about that, but I think it's true. Obviously, they say, oh, you want it hot, but not too hot. Thank you. They also <laughs> say, you shouldn't move the food around too much. I true, particularly eggs. Is, Let it get a hard base and it might just come loose. That's it. No, that's it. Exactly. I think the point is, you, you kind of let it burn a little bit and on. stick. And then it, and then, it solidifies so much that it comes off of its own. Then you kind of slough off the... the yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there's almost like that sort of uh, nuclear shadow around it, isn't there? You know? That's right, yeah. And harder to clean, you know. It's going to be harder to clean them, isn't it? Yeah, I, that's satisfying. We've, 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 we've ended the circle there. We've rounded the end, haven't we? Or whatever, however you want to say this. We squared the circle. The circle the movie news, Paul. You know, when we reviewed the, the Time Loop movie about... Was it last week's movie? You know, the one... Palm um, Springs. Palm Springs, thank you. It has been occurring to me that there's a bit of a flaw in the, you in the don't plot, say. isn't there? I know, maybe it's harsh to pull them up on this. But you know when she tests her blow-up theory on the goat? 
Mm-hmm. The goat doesn't come back the next day. And she mm-hmm. goes, oh, it must have worked then. Mm-hmm. Yet when they blow themselves up, they are still there. Niles is still at the party the next day. He is, isn't he? So the logic is not the same, is it? It's not the same. Hey, Thank ho. you. Well, there you go. Still a nice movie. I wonder, Paul, what movie we're going to be talking about this week. More Groundhog-esque shenanigans. Let's see after this incredible musical break that maybe has or hasn't now employed the talents of AI. Now, Paul, you said that you hadn't listened to last week's podcast. I haven't for various reasons. So I wonder how you know that maybe last week's podcast already was utilising an AI musician as Just a interstitial guess. artist. Just to guess. Yeah. You want to check it out, man. I just slipped it in there without permission. I didn't ask you permission. Just Good. did it. Good. <laughs> I, like, I like that attitude. Gumption. Yeah, but change right. is needed. Bring on change. <laughs> so a, a thankful release for, for all our ear, ear, eardrums from, from what came before. It's uh, not the same as your previous effort, of course. Not as hard hitting or as chunky, perhaps. I tried to retain the same kind of... Uh, Dissonant mm, aggravation dis- on the ears? No, the, the train line <laughs> kind of atmosphere of the percussion. Yes. There is something about composing music on Google's most simple, <laughs> least advanced music composer, isn't there? Sorry, I didn't mean to bring trains up. Obviously, I, PTSD for Paul, yeah, who has been struggling more. with our... Uh, Glorious railway network. Pull off trains and onto boats. This week's movie. In the past few days, trains and buses, you know, you wait for one and then two don't come along at once. Here we've got two Groundhoggian movies in quick succession, haven't we? We're doing time loops, Paul. Time loops, absolutely. Okay, so this is on a boat, on a very nice boat, and then on an even bigger boat. It's called Triangle, and it's from, like, way back. Like, I don't know, 2009, 2010, perhaps? I'm on a boat. As the Lonely Planet guys sang. It's another throwback to last week's. 2009, yes, Triangle. Now, you said, just as we were gearing up to start recording, something about this being British, but not set in Britain. Yeah, well, it, I mean, it's British funded, I know that. Okay, because when it, I. Yeah, s- it's funded by the National Lottery, right? Is it? Well, it said that at the beginning. It's one of the logos that popped oh, okay. up. Funded by National Lottery. Produced by the UK Film Council. Okay. Right, okay, interesting. And yet, it is set. In Florida, I think. Florida, and stars an Australian. And filmed in Australia as well. Oh. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. So I was trying to work out why a film funded by British Lottery Money and the UK Film Council is presumably made in Australia with Australian talent. It's all Australian and, talent, yeah. Well, New Zealand and, have in throwing for good measure. but So why would it set itself in the US? <sighs> I don't know. Well, for commercial reasons, you'd assume, right? Yeah. You want a US Was it Florida or California, it it was saying? No, maybe it was California. No, Sunshine State. Is that... That's Florida, that's Florida. That's Florida, yeah, okay. It was shot in Australia. Here's a weird thing, though. I don't believe, according to what I read on IMDb, I don't believe it got a release in the cinema in the US. I'm not sure it got a release, cinema release, in the... UK? It didn't get a general cinema release, did it? It, did, it was released theatri- theatrically. Sorry, I'm just checking on the notes here. It was released theatrically in the UK, yeah. yeah. But not the US. It did not receive a theatrical release in the US, correct. Yeah, sorry. So after going to the trouble of pretending to film it in the US, or pretending to set it in the US, it never even got released there. Sure, but did many Italians watch Return of the Saint? <laughs> I don't know. Is that supposed to be Italian? Well, it's always, it's either, you know, Simon Templar never stayed. We just sometimes stay in the UK. But I would say three times out of four, either he's in some part of Italy or is in some, some part of France. Is he called the saint because he's some kind of Vatican agent? I don't know. Maybe have you been watching it recently? Name. Presumably, you must have been. It's repeated every night on some channel in the middle of the 50s or 60s on your free view. And uh, yeah, so there's only about 24 episodes. And so it kind of recycles once a month. If you miss huh. it, don't worry, you'll, right. you'll get it in on the light too. Yeah. This movie opens an exterior shot on a beach. A young woman is waking up on a beach as if she's been washed onto a beach. I don't know how often this happens. I mean, if you're lost at sea, 
Do people fall asleep when they're tossing and turning on the ocean and then wake up on a desert island? Is that how it happens? No. I mean, I know it's like a trope. It is a trope, but, but it's, it's not a true trope. I had a friend whose brother died in two inches of water at the seaside. Oh, gosh. Well, like, exactly. You can easily drown if you're not conscious in very small amounts of water. So I think when in literature you see someone waking up on a beach on a desert island, it's presumably usually meant to indicate Maybe that they're imagining it, or that this is the afterlife or something. Oh, that's interesting. Now, that's Maybe we'll come back to that. to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, yeah. that's how this film opens. But then we have the credits. We see this young woman called Jess, played by an act- actor called Melissa George. Melissa George, yeah. Now we see her in her home. She's a young single mum, it would seem. She is plucking a toy sailboat out of the swimming pool. Oh, as a good attention to detail there, Richard. Ah. Someone rings the doorbell. She's a bit flustered by doing, you know, busy single mum stuff, like having to do everything. She goes to the door, there's nobody there. Because someone was playing the game that we, of course, call... Halloween? Trick or treat? Ha- trick or treat? What? Knocky what? knocky? I don't know. Knocky knocky. What do you call it? I don't know what you call it. I've never played well, that it game. Has- You've never played the game where you knock and run? Knock and run, thank you. Knock and run. Never played that, no. It's got lots of different names, Paul. I don't know why you're so excited about that particular phraseology. Oh. Some people call it knock down ginger. Knock down ginger, why? And I've also seen it called knocky door ginger. Wow. But never gin rummy. In America, I think it's called like ring and ditch or something. Or whoa, ring and ditch. Is that right? Something like that. I do like the way that Americans call shotgun for the front seat. Is that an American thing? Yeah, because we we bags the front seat, don't we? I'm gonna bags it. Bagsies. But they call they call shotgun. I mean, I I feel I would call shotgun as well, but maybe that's just you know cultural imperialism work. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and in this film, of course, they'd have to say shotgun, they'd be pretending to be American, wouldn't they? But don't we call dibs, or do we used to call dibs instead of bagsy? Yeah, when you were like five, I sure. see. And whenever you were choosing people for sports teams, do you do it, dip, tom, tip, but with rude words instead? It, dip, dog, shit. Yes. You are now it, that kind yes. of thing. It's strange how sort of uniform and predictable all these varietals of uh, child experience are and were, isn't it? But when you're choosing the members of a sports team, Paul, you wouldn't do it using that rhyme. You, That would be random, wouldn't it? Normally people do it in order of sporting ability for that particular event, don't they? Oh. Don't they? Like if you're choosing a football team. No, you, you could. Go, ju- like, I think generally we could choose three each and then the rest had to be randomly assigned. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. In a weird mix of meritocracy. It was. It was sort of everyone the, the, gets the a Nick Clegg. Day. The Nick Clegg of political sports choosing choices, wasn't it? It's like the worst of both worlds. We all know the three best ones, and we all know... (laughs) (laughs) The the kids would make it known anyway, wouldn't they, if they were dissatisfied with someone who was on their team? When I was teaching in South Korea for a very short time before I realised I should do something less painful in South Korea, when I first turned up, that's how I got there, I noticed that the primary school I was teaching at the way they chose their sports teams was they kind of lined up all the sh- short small boys. The older boys chose. And they kind of lined up all the short little urchins against a wall, facing the wall, and then huh. at very close quarters, like eight yards away, fired at full pelt a football into their asses. And whoever's ass got hit, they were on the team. Right, okay. And the the ping, you know when overinflated balls ping, they kind of ring, ping. don't they? <laughs> it, uh, there's an indication of how, how painful it must have been, but there you go. Huh. That was different. Wow. I'd never seen that before. No, Paul, it does again. It sounds quasi-abusive and something you probably should have reported. I should have, yes, I was a teacher there. <laughs> I should have reported it. However, all the Korean teachers were walking past while it happened, so maybe it's just like... Who would you have reported it to? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I it, very much all Korean teachers believe that, you know, when boys are aged like 10 to 12, you don't break up their fights. Oh, yeah. okay. Well, you see who's the fittest. <laughs> no, they believe that, you know, boys that have never thrown punches and never learned to, never learned to be responsible with their punches. Right, okay. You know, but they never learned the skill of, you know, putting a pillow between face and... I don't know. I don't know where they're going with that one, to be honest with you. But it's a bit like the idea that... To they be all a firmly good believe driver, it, though. They all, you know, it wasn't just To be just a good one. driver, you have to have, like, lost control and skidded. Or yes! It's kind of like experience is the best teacher, isn't it? Hand in the, what's it called? You know, hand in the fire kind of techniques. Right, yes. 
Well, I did that as a kid. I put my hand in a fire. Did you? To be fair, well, it was the you day after... You idiot, Richard. What did you do that <laughs> for? Accidentally, on purpose. It was the day after bonfire night. You fucking It was the day what? after bonfire night. Oh, the ashes. To the ashes. Out. And what, you still had a roast potato in there? Could you not no, see no, the no. glinting it, tinfoil? It was like a, a log, a, a large piece of wood that remained in the ashes. Well, my dad would say, don't go near those embers. There could be an unexploded firework in there. <laughs> Never thought of that. But I tried to roll the log. I tried Uh, to roll the log out of the ashes of the fire, and it was, of course, blisteringly hot. At least you had, you know, a healthy, healthy attitude towards exploration. My father was very coddling to that extent. There wasn't a lot to climb trees, which I guess kids are not these days. It was unusual in my time. Uh, Let us build bonfires. We didn't let us go near the potential exploding fireworks afterwards. And we once got a fly in the dining room, and it landed on the steak, or was it lamb chops, for about two seconds, and he threw out the whole meal. Because of hygiene <laughs> risks. There you go. So these days we diagnose them with OCD, I think, what do we? Not sure how I'd feel about steak that a fly had started to eat. I would have been fine, I've got to be honest with you. It landed hmm. for could've, two seconds. Not long enough to lay an egg. That bit out, and, you? Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm happy with one fly egg. I'm not bothered about it. <laughs> it's not the eggs that you have to worry about, Paul. Oh, it's the it's hygiene. What, it's what they were sitting on before they landed on your steak, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but they're not dung flies, are they? I don't know. True. Probably yeah, different Dietary Blue bottles don't they? go near dung, don't they? Or maybe they do. Oh, they go near rubbish, don't they? That's it. Where are we? Okay, she has an autistic son, doesn't she? Poor thing. Yeah, we learned that, yeah. And she's taking the kid out of town in the car. We see her speaking to the kid and stuff. And then the credits end. Yeah. And now we see a bunch of young people arriving at a jetty with a, a small yacht mm-hmm. called Triangle, appropriately, because it's the name of the film. The boat guy... Owner, I think he lives on the boat. I think Greg. it's a houseboat called Greg. That's right. He's got a liverboard, a little helper, a little 18-year-old helper called Victor. Victor played by... Now, this is interesting. Who's the actor playing Victor? It looks a bit like the guy who plays Thor, but it's not Thor. It's his brother. It's not. It is. Stop. It's Liam Hemsworth. Stop yeah. right now. <laughs> it is not. It is. I'm just looking at, yeah, I'm looking yeah, at the notes yeah. here. Oh, my gosh. No, he looks a bit older than 18, doesn't he? He's a big boy for 18, has to be said. Sure, yeah, yeah. He's supposed to have, like, found him sleeping rough or something and given him a place to live. Well, that happens, you know, if you go down to Cannes or these kind of yacht towns, you do, you know, you do get taken on as as crew just by hanging around and, like, seeming poor but seeming genuine and honest, you know. These seafaring kind of captains, they're very into, like, helping the honest but hardworking kind, aren't they? So they do like you to be down on your look. You might get more job doing that than if you went as a professional crew. Now, this guy, Greg, he's got a friend called Downey who turns up. Yeah, with his wife, he's a bit... isn't it? No. He's, oh. he's got, well, I think it's his girlfriend, and his girlfriend brings... Uh, a, a girl with her who Heather. is she's trying to set her friend up with Greg isn't she right okay so Sally who's down his girlfriend but not wife is trying to set up his her friend Heather with Greg and apparently she does this every year Greg's not interested Heather picks up on that fact and tells him also by the way Greg don't flat yourself I'm not interested in getting off with you but he has got a really nice yacht so I don't know if I believe her that much about that he has a yacht but it is also his house so, yeah, it's a bit of a turn-off, though, isn't it, really? <laughs> he's not interested in Heather because he's actually interested in the young mum, Jess. Yes. Who is just about to turn up with Victor. How the hell does she know him? I think we're ex- it's explained, isn't it? They met because she's working as a waitress in a local cafe or bar or something. Right. He met her in the bar, chatted her up, and he's now invited her. So they're not girlfriend and boyfriend yet, but they're interested. He's you, know, you made a good along. point, you know, like, oh, I've got my own yacht, and it's a really nice motor yacht, so it has sails and motor too. It must be sure. at least two hundred, three hundred thousand pounds But when you scale the fact, fact that he hasn't got a house, <laughs> yeah. it's not that attractive anymore, is it? You no, know? it's an insurance risk, isn't it, as we'll soon and, discover. And so. it's not an asset, it's, it's a liability, isn't it? <laughs> Admittedly, it's, it's a slowly depreciating. It's, it. it's a slowly depreciating liability, but it does have expenses. You have to take the barnacles off. You need to get it, I don't know, oiled or painted once every five years, and you've got that mooring, which must be as much as a rent anyway, unless you stay at sea all the time or go to temporary mooring. So, yeah, if he had his, if he had his, you know, his land boat and his sea boat, then of course I think it is a turn on, isn't it? Really. Jess arrives and she looks a bit discombobulated and yeah. there's an exchange of conversation. They ask about her son and she says, 
initially not sure where where her son is, but mm-hmm. then she says he's at school, so everything's fine. But she's very tired, so I think she winds up going in, into one of the cabins below and having a sleep. She dreams again of waking up washed up on a beach. But this will come clear later, won't it, a little bit. Yeah. Downey's like ribbing Greg for having Victor live on his boat with him. And they're gossiping about the waitress as well while she's downstairs. Yeah, in that slightly rich person, nasty way. Yeah, they're saying that she's a gold digger. She's just a waitress, be careful. Well, truly rich people would give a fat fuck, would they? Not that I'm eulogising or putting truly rich people on a pedestal. It's just they don't bother with that kind of natter. They're a different breed, Paul. They are. They're like dolphins, as Hunter S. Thompson said. look up to them. (laughs) They fuck like dolphins, as Hunter S. Thompson famously said. Well, we know how dolphins fuck, don't we? So... Well, yeah, we do. And I think Hunter did. I think it was a double-edged sword he was writing with there, wasn't it? He knew his stuff, yeah. Downey and Greg have known each other since childhood. Apparently this is why they're friends. Ah, I missed that bit. Yeah, and I I don't know what special occasion. I think they do this every year, don't they? They they Uh take the boat out every year. Presumably he doesn't normally take his house out on the high seas. (laughs) Just for japes. (laughs) I don't know. Well, as we find out, it's probably a good idea that he doesn't. As they're sailing along, suddenly the wind drops yeah. and they are becalmed, or in the doldrums, as mariners would say. The doldrums, you're right. That is a mar- maritime term, isn't it? Well done. And they spot a fierce storm front approaching just out of the it's clear blue sky. I mean, it's, it's nary, nary a flutter of wind. It is mill pond. But as you say... Greg is, Greg is... Well, we're familiar with the storms here, aren't we? We've had two in the last couple of months. Uh-huh. Causing merry hell with the trains, aren't we? are down to D in the alphabet, aren't we? Is Doris or... Early November. Debbie, isn't it? Debbie. Debbie, Debbie, with an I. And a single B. Well done there. Greg is calling the Coast Guard on the radio, but he's having trouble getting through after after a short time. But as he's doing that, he and Jess, who's woken up, hear a distress caller on the frequency. A woman... Crackling. Woman's voice. Crackling. She's saying, they're all dead. She's killing or he's killing everybody. And then they lose connection with her, and suddenly they spot a giant wave is approaching. I suppose it's a rogue wave. Have you, do you know about these? Well, is it just random random superposition patterns? Exactly, yeah, yeah. And they really happen, yeah, yeah. So you just get, as you say, you get constructive interference occasionally. That makes Very occasionally, yeah. yeah much bigger than that might be expected for the, the seas at the time and place. So Greg says, get your life jackets, get, get down below. Deck. Mm. Yeah. Him and Victor are struggling to drop the sails. Suddenly, the wind is picking up and there's deluge and rain and hail is coming down and stuff. This massive wave capsizes the vessel. Somebody entertainingly crashes through a, a skylight. Is that right? It's Heather, isn't it? Oh. Heather gets sort of pulled out through a broken window as the vessel is capsizing. And so it winds up that there's now five of them left sitting on the upturned hull of their yacht on Greg's house. They're pretty demoralised, I suppose, at this point. But and there's there. not a life straw between them. Do you know, have you heard about life straws? Is this where you suck yeah. water up and it filters the water? As you exactly. I don't think it works with seawater. I think it only works to uh, eliminate uh, mi- like microbes stuff. from yeah. Yeah. drinking water. Yeah, so you could take into- it with you on your jungle hike, but probably no good at sea. But, uh, you know, the old method of putting a pan, scooping up a pan of seawater, covering it with some sort of plastic wrap and then putting a stone at the top of the plastic wrap and then putting a little jar on top of the pan so that the, the collects the evaporate and drops into a little jug. Okay, They've kind of refined that now. You can buy these kind of kits that sort of do that when you're out at sea to collect oh, yeah. and evaporate seawater. Yeah. No, no, they've got like these osmosis filters as well. Have they? Oh, I don't know that. After a while, a large ship is seen approaching. I'm going to call it a cruise Huge. ship. Yeah. They see it coming closer and closer out of this sort of mist. But it's not a modern cruise ship. It's more like the old ocean, ocean-going kind of... Like an ocean liner kind of thing. A great, no. Yeah, the great ships of, of yore kind of thing. One of them sees a silhouette of someone peering over a rail. So they're waving, you know, and saying, oh, come on, help us. And the cruise ship comes close enough that they can jump over onto the little ladder that comes down the side to where you get on the tender. As Somali pirates do, I guess, also. As the Somali pirates do. But why do Somali pirates never board cruise ships? They don't, do they? I suppose they don't want to have to deal with all the hostages, do they? They uh-huh. want cargo 
valuable cargo that they can ransom with from the companies that own it, but they don't want to have to feed 3,000 people. <laughs> but a lot of jewellery if you, if you choose the better cruise liners, yeah. I guess so. But, I mean, what they generally do is get, you know, huge ransoms paid. By... Oh, they just go for the ransom, I see. Yeah, I think so. How very Blackbeard. A cruise ship full of people would be an extraordinary crowd control problem, wouldn't it? Correct, yeah. There's bound to be you know, dozens hero. of have-a-go heroes on the... <laughs> Yeah. Several people wearing rugby shirts, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because presumably the crew on cargo vessels are told, do whatever the pirates say, don't risk your life, it's not worth it, etc. Presumably, I imagine. So, they board this cruise ship, don't they? But oddly, nobody seems to greet them. It's deserted, no passengers, no crew, it's completely deserted. This ship's called Aeolus? Yeah, apparently Eolus? it's a Greek. One of the guys today, we get a small exposition by the educated one, who I think is Sally. She says, I studied this. This is the father of Sisyphus. Sisyphus. And of course, Sisyphus is famously the chap in legend who had to do the same task over and over again, like rolling a rock up a hill or something. That's right, yeah. Only to have it. Have they to discuss it. why was that the case, because two two options, he 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 didn't die or he cheated death or he made cheated a deal death. with death and didn't hold up his end of the bargain which is obvious plot dropping there isn't it yeah absolutely it's all metaphor as we will see uh, did they say something about his father killing a child or something uh, well we'll get back to that yeah maybe Greg Captain Greg suggests going to the bridge getting the captain to call the coast guard Sensible idea. And we see a shot from the stern of the vessel as it steams away from the upturned yacht bobbing on the sea. They're walking through these sort of endless cabin corridors, all the same, lots of different cabins, and Jess sort of stops and she's suddenly having really strong deja vu feelings walking through these corridors. It's quite a while since I've had deja vu, but I do remember some really strong deja vu. Do you have any lucid dreams recently? No. Do you do you lucid dream? Since I stopped drinking coffee, yes. So you are aware that you're dreaming and you yeah. can control your dream. Yeah. And what do you do with your dream powers, Paul? Okay, maybe you don't want to discuss this in public. Well, I mean, they're not particularly interesting dreams. It was like we were in a room that had a marble checkerboard kind of floor. Right. But it was sunken okay. in one particular room. We all slid down there. <laughs> and in my lucidness, I decided to get a rag and start polishing it to make it look a bit better. In your lucidness, you yeah. felt the best thing I can do here. The best thing I can do up. is polish the sort of sunken marble floor. Yeah. Hang on, though, maybe you're using the word lucid dream differently to what I understand it to mean. Are you saying that you knew you were in a dream? Yeah. You knew you were in a dream, and yeah. then the coda to that normally is, and you could control the dream. So you have full powers in the dream and you can do whatever you like. Yeah, kind of. Mostly I focus on controlling myself and uh, deciding to clean the floor. <laughs> it seemed very important. It seemed the most important thing to do. Interesting. So it, anything you could do in the world, in the universe, <laughs> and you decide to clean a marble floor. A ragged and sunken marble floor past, right. past its prime. There we go. Uh, I only wish I could lucid dream so I could do light chores. <laughs> anyway, so deja vu, you haven't had any deja vu for a long time. No, but I do remember having a really strong deja vu at school. You need to write them down before you realise they're deja vu. You need to have what? a system where you write down most of your thoughts and then you can refer back to them. Quite easily these days, because if you type them up, they're easily searched, aren't they, as Word documents rather than as diaries that they used to be. I was standing outside, or standing half in and half out of the science block, I think, yeah. chatting to our mutual friends. And I just had this really strong deja vu experience that it had happened before, and the conversation was unfolding exactly the same way. Well, that wouldn't be a surprise, would it? <laughs> no, but, you know, it was like... I mean, schoolboy conversations do tend to... Sure, but it was exact, you know. Return to familiar things. <laughs> it was exact, and uh, I suppose... And again, that wouldn't be that much of a surprise for me. But, sorry, go <laughs> no, on. but it was—it wasn't just the conversation. It was the location and the lighting and the, 
the image in my mind's eye, you know, where everyone was standing. Uh, and I, obviously, I'm well aware deja vu is an illusion, right? It's just giving you this very strong sensation that this has happened before, or this is a triggering a memory. But what should take it? Is it false memory, or is it sort of sort of conscious conscious lag? Yeah, I, th- I think the explanation is it's like a lag, isn't it? It's like your consciousness is is for some reason slightly behind the memory record being made, and so each thing that happens triggers your memory immediately. I, th- I think that's the explanation of déjà vu. Wow. Still, introspectively, that's how it felt very much. Anyway, Jess's déjà vu may be for another reason, as we will discover. As they're walking along, they hear the noise of something hitting the floor like a jangle. Victor finds an object on the floor, which Jess immediately recognises as her own keys, mm-hmm. which is strange. Sally concludes that the only explanation for that is it must be Heather, who must have found her way, survived, somehow have Jess's keys, found her way onto this cruise ship before them, and has now dropped the keys, perhaps running away from them for some reason. They are sort of in denial about Heather's disappearance, aren't they? Just as this all happens, Jess kind of says, wait a minute, I just saw somebody up there. Sprints off down the corridor to go and chase after. Who she I think Victor chases after. Oh, Victor gives chase, okay. So Victor chases after whomsoever they, whether it's captain or, you know, some stevedore, they go chase after whoever they think is on the boat, on the ship. Greg goes to find the bridge. Jess follows worried about Victor, they hear, as they're doing this, they hear noises from one of the cabins. Mm. They knock briefly and enter. In an interesting bit of cinematography, we see Jess looking in mirrors in the cabin. There's three of them. You see three images of Jess. They go into the bathroom and they see the words, Go to Heather, written in blood on the mirror. Wow. Greg is now convinced that they're being pranked by ship crew. Or how ship crew would have known that Heather was in their party, I don't know. Greg and Jess split up at this point. Jess is worried about seeing and getting back to her son, because it's been, you know, some time now. She's always worried about her son, isn't she? She's Mm. mentioned concern for him several times during the adventure so far. Sally and Downey, meanwhile, have found a blood trail on the floor, and they follow that trail into the ship's theatre. Whoa. You seem surprised, Paul. No, you, I'm, just, I'm, I'm amazed that you can remember all this detail, because, I mean, it repeats... I wrote it down, Paul. Oh, it repeats... I wrote it down because so it would be so confusing. Yeah. <laughs> Jess goes back to the dining hall where they'd been previously and finds uh, a bunch of food. Downey's been eating it. Uh, it looked kind of rotten to me. Yeah, or badly presented. Or like dead seagulls sort of dressed up as food. I don't know what it was. It was kind of like a bit Wicker Man, wasn't it? And at this point, Victor staggers into the dining room, covered in blood. Ineffectually tries to kill Jess. Is that right? Yeah, well, he... He's half dead himself, isn't he? Goes to her, tries to strangle her. He fight, she fights him. She grabs his head. And sticks a and finger seems, in, the back of his, in the back of his head or something. Yeah, it right? seems there's a hole in the back of his head. That's she right, She manages yeah. to sort of lever him off with this... With a, a grip, as it were. <laughs> he ends up unconscious, perhaps because he's got a hole in his head. It's like when a volleyball hears... of a head, isn't it? Like, yeah. <laughs> she hears gunfire, and she runs to the theatre where the others went. Sally and Downey are now cradling a mortally wounded Greg. And Sally says that Greg, in his dying words, says that Jess shot him. Whoa. They're about to believe all that, aren't they? They're about to go for her. But then something interrupts this idea that Jess is the killer. Sally and Downey get shot from the balcony. There's the someone gantry, up on the, yeah, yeah, from up there uh, in, the, in the, yeah. the box seats, as it were. In the heavens, yeah. By it looks like a crazed kind of vendetta sort of mass shooter. Some person with a mask over their face. They finish off Sally and Downey with more shots. Jess is fleeing. She runs away to the kitchen, grabs a knife. Yeah, we get an she incredible hides. kind of montage of struggle here, don't we? Well, she hides behind a counter. She, and then this, she drops athletically from one floor to the next by swinging out over the sea, doesn't she, as well? At some point, yes. Yeah. yeah. After the encounter in the kitchen where the masked person with the rifle or shotgun comes in and then leaves, she runs out onto deck. She finds all the lifeboats have gone. Mm. Don't know whether they were always gone, but they're certainly gone now. And then the masked gunman jumps her. That's when they have a fight, as you say. And Jess gets the upper hand when she pulls a fire axe off a wall. 
That's right. We get a nice hand-to-hand with weapons combat section, don't we? And she's getting the upper hand on this masked person when a woman's voice comes from behind the mask and is saying that you've got to kill them. You must kill them. It's the only way to get out. Just before Jess sort of swings at her with the axe and she escapes by jumping over the rails into the ocean. She then hears music playing on an old gramophone and she runs over. She was up the, on the bow of the ship at this point. She goes over to one of the interiors at the front of the ship and there is indeed an old gramophone playing. And she goes to it, but she hears shouting and she goes out onto the railing of the deck and there she sees, ahead of the ship, a capsized boat with five people on it yelling at the ship. Yes, it's themselves. She sees herself on the top of the upturned vessel with all her mates, including everyone who just got shot. Presumably, just like what's happened before, she's the silhouette that they spot up above. She's absolutely shocked by this and backs away which is exactly what they saw the silhouette do when they were arriving. She backs into the gramophone. Deja vu, as she just mentioned, isn't it? And she goes into the corridor, starts hiding, and gets deja vu in the corridors again, obviously. As this new group are clambering onto the the She can overhear them, can't she? They start coming through the corridors and the cabins where she is. They're having exactly the same conversations as her group did when they first came on board. And she drops the keys that she's now been holding since... She took them from Victor when he found them. Runs away because they hear the noise of the keys falling. And of course, they're going to presumably find the keys. And new Jess is going to say, those are my keys. She finds herself in the cabin with water running noisily. And she sees go to Heather on the mirror in there. And then the other Jess nearly sees herself. So she winds up running out onto the deck. And she looks over the side. She sees a body in the water being eaten by seagulls. And blood on the railing, just sort of opposite where the body was, apparently. Victor emerges, looking for the person he'd run off to find. <laughs> that was any sort of earlier iteration of this same thing. Surprised to see Jess there so quickly, because he'd presumably just left her. And she tries, this is a bit silly of her really, to explain that she's in a time loop. <laughs> <laughs> and she tells him that Downey's body is in the water. But when they look over the railing, they just see birds there now, the seagulls. Sort of right, just can I stop a second? How did Downey actually die? Do we know yet? Well, we don't know yet. We don't well, know it's yet. Not okay, yet. thank you. Oh, well, we, we know he got shot by the person in the theatre, don't we? I suppose we yes. do know that. We don't know how he got in the water. Right. So, she says that his body, that is Victor's body, is on the floor of the restaurant with a hole in his head. <laughs> Now, Victor doesn't really believe this. She's trying to impeach him. And at some point, she grabs him uh, by, the, by his face. Remonstrates kind of, violently, physically with him. Shakes, trying to shake some sense into him. Yeah. That's right, yeah. And she pushes his head quite violently back. And he's standing against a bulkhead. And unfortunately, he impales his head on a hook that was sticking out of the bulkhead. I, I believe for this reason that hooks are never kind of head height anymore, are they? Okay, because it does actually happen that people damage themselves on sharp hooks. But it's a very, very famous scene in, well, not so famous movie now from about 20 years ago called Bad Things, where they head off to Las Vegas on a wedding trip. It kind of presaged the hangover movies by about eight years, yeah? Right. Very similar in theme, you know. Some boys get together for a... Good old boys get together for a, 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 a wedding stag do and things go really downhill but they they don't go comically downhill as in the hangover they go down tra- tragically downhill and uh, one of the guys hires a you know a very high class las vegas vietnamese hooker for the evening for two thousand dollars and he's just loves how so light and nimble she is you know she's more than little more than 70 pounds so he kind of lifts her up and starts to do a uh, knee jerker style against the bathroom door which has a massive hook on it and impales her mid ah. have you not seen that movie wow. bad things it's a good movie. If you I have were. seen it, yeah, but I don't remember that bit. It must have, it must have made an impression on you, Paul. Well, I mean, it's well because I love the Hangover movies. I, I always thought, well, they're just copies of bad things, but made palatable, really. Yeah, yeah, made more lighthearted. It's a good movie, though. It's a really good movie. So that bit, impaling someone's head on a hook, has kind of heritage. It has history. It has movie heritage, yeah. yeah. It may even be an homage to that, mightn't it? Jess runs away from the scene and she starts losing it. She's hiding in a kind of crew area. 
Mm-hmm. She finds a lot of crumpled notes on the floor, lots of them, and she transcribes it. She writes it on a fresh page of a notepad she finds. The words are, if they bored, kill them. And she sees that they're all in her handwriting, and there's many of them. Wow. She also finds a boiler suit, similar to one the killer was wearing in one of the lockers, and shotguns in a rack. And as she's doing that, she looks down to a grating, and dangling in the grating, there is a locket. A chain is caught on it. She pulls it up. It's a locket. It's a picture of her and her son that she normally wears. As she's doing this, her own locket on her neck slips off her neck and falls through the grate. She looks down through the grating. There's a pile of these lockets. This has happened before again and again and again. So it's building up, isn't it? This thing that is repeating and repeating many times, not just the twice so far that we've seen. Jess runs off and she intervenes between Jess and Victor, holding the gun to Jess. This is in the dining room. She finds that she can't pull the trigger. She just can't shoot herself. Mm-hmm. And the new Jess runs away. Our Jess that we've been following seems pleased that this is not what she remembers happening. Yeah, she's thinking while well, it's developing, there's a way out of here because it's not simply repeating itself. That's right. But she's not she, entirely she, right about that, is she? She's not, um, for reasons we'll come maybe to. maybe there's... Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She hears a gunshot. It's a really good reason, let's just say that. Sally and Downey escape the theatre this time with Jess assisting. And she is using her shotgun. She shoots the masked person in the Who is boxes. not shooting number one, is now shooting number three. Does that make sense? She clips her on the top of the head. Yeah, she's like Jess double prime, isn't she? Mm-hmm. She gives them the shotgun, presumes Sally and Downey, tells them not to trust anybody but to shoot them straight away. Sally and Downey wind up holding out against Jess Double Prime, the killer, <laughs> who tells them, takes her mask off and tells them to follow her if they want to live. Wow. Jess, too, has got blood on her face in a distinctive kind of rivulet that's running down her face. That's useful because it helps us distinguish the various Jesses that are now appearing. That's right. Jess Double Prime leads them to a cabin, <laughs> brutally murders Downey in the cabin. Wow. Sally escapes, and I think our Jess pursues Sally to help her. Sally winds up this is a in good scene. the radio room, and she's making a call saying that, you know, that everyone's dead and they're trying to kill her kind of thing. Jess, meanwhile, overhears Greg on the radio responding and, and receiving the call. Wow. So we now know that it was Sally that they heard previous Sally that they heard on the radio earlier. Sally has now crawled on deck, but she's terribly injured because she was stabbed by Jess Double Prime. And she winds up on a little kind of poop deck kind of thing. Jess follows her up there, and there's loads of dead Sallys. Yeah, so things are repeating, except there's more than one loop. It's a Mobius strip, isn't it, that kind of crosses over twice or maybe three times? How many times? Triangle, isn't it? It's three times. Because we're going to see this thing three times repeat, but slightly different each time, but then looping back around. Essentially looping back around, yeah, still within the, the same bounds, yeah. Looking down, she sees Jess, sees one of the Jesses, fighting the boiler suit Jess, and then chucking her overboard. She's looking down from this higher, kind of level deck above. As Sally dies from the stab wound, adding to all of the other Sallys that are down here. Presumably about to be eaten by the gathering seagulls. Our Jess hears the survivors again on the capsized boat. Now the third time that the the cruise ship is approaching the capsized boat and realises that the return occurs when everyone but her is dead. At least that's her conclusion. So she runs to the engine room, tries to stop the ship, but it's futile. And now, now dazed by this whole experience, she sees Jess Triple Prime accidentally impaling Victor on a hook. And when <laughs> Jess Triple Prime leaves, goes to Victor and says, I know how to save you. She goes into the cabin where she saw Downey murdered. And he'd written Jess on the mirror. And she changes the message on the mirror with some more blood to go see Heather instead. Wow. And then she throws Downey's body overboard. And also, I think, grabs Greg from the theatre. That's how we find out what happened to Downey's body. She tells Downey and Sally to meet in the theatre. I think her plan now is to kill everybody. Yes. So she can reset the loop. She then gets dressed up in the mask and the boiler suit and goes into the theatre with the shotgun 
to kill Downey and Sally, who she'd told to meet there. As she does that, she sees a live Greg on the balcony. She shoots Greg, who falls over the edge. That's when Sally and Downey find Greg has been shot. Presumably he says, oh, it was, it was Jess that shot me. He recognised Jess, even though she was masked, because he looks down and sees her sandals. And obviously he's been looking at her sandals, because he fancies her. Incredible attention to detail, Richard. She didn't want him to see her face, did she? That's the point, really. And that was the only way, I suppose, ultimately she could pull the trigger. She shoots Sally and Downey as well, and then the Jess fight occurs. This time she's the masked one, obviously. So she's got to the third stage now, is that right? That's right. And of course, the fight ends up with the other Jess, the unmasked Jess, getting the upper hand and her having to jump overboard. And that's when we see Jess now waking up, washed up on the beach, just as we did at the very beginning. Yeah. Now, if it was repeating that point, then she hasn't escaped, has she? It just seems to be repeating. So why is she waking up again? I don't get this bit. Aha. So we know that it's that Jess because we see the boiler suit rolling in the surf next to her. Right. She finds her way to a road and hitchhikes, and we see her running down her street to her house because she's really concerned about her autistic son, isn't she? We see it just as we did earlier in the film. We see the guy who is mowing the lawn. She looks in through the window. She sees her son, and then she hears herself going about her chores just as she had done, and we saw her that morning pulling a sailboat out of the pool, spilling paint on a dress. And abusing her like son as well. We're now seeing the same events that we saw at the start of the movie, but we're seeing a, also a different side to Jess. Yeah. She's getting angry at her son, yelling and striking him at one point. Our Jess, the one we've been following, runs up, pushes the doorbell and runs away. And while the Jess that she's been observing, the evil Jess, as it were, comes to the door, our Jess goes and gets a hammer from the shed and she goes and kills the new Jess with a hammer. She puts the body in the back of the car. She goes and comforts the boy. We'd actually seen this earlier in the film. That's right. Comforting yeah. her son. She's comforting him because she's, or she had just hit him. Yeah. She just witnessed herself hitting her son. She's distracted whilst driving, isn't she? So he's screaming. She's got things to say to him. She has a narrow miss where she almost hits the car and carries on driving. He carries on distracting her. Yes, and she's not paying attention. She hits a seagull at one point. That's right. Blood splattered across the windscreen. And here's a key thing. She stops the car and gets out to pick the seagull up out of the road. She gets a bit of newspaper, picks it up. She carries it over to the beach wall and chucks it over. And when she looks over, there's a a huge pile of dead seagulls. So she realises at that point she's still stuck in the loop. It's like the the classic Blackadder movie episode where, oh, fuck, I'm still dreaming, aren't I? She carries on driving and her son Tommy is still very distressed and she's trying to calm him down, but obviously she is now also distressed. And as she's turning around, she drifts into the oncoming lane and her car is totally flipped over by a truck. Who are Tommy's killed on impact, isn't he? We see people standing around his body or leaning over his body trying to fix him, but it's clear that he's dead. She's being tended to with blood on her face in exactly the same rivulet of blood that we saw, actually earlier on the boat but we see her also looking at the scene like completely unscathed apparently with a faraway look in her eye Mm. and a taxi is stopped behind her and a driver gets out and he asks if he can take her anywhere and she says yes to the harbour where she meets Victor and and Greg and the others all over again wowzers okay so wow yeah and I think that's we finished it now, haven't we? Thank God. That is, that is the end of a potentially very confusing three-level time loop story. Whoa, so, so complex, but relatively well-crafted, I thought, and very, very ambitious indeed. Really good, honestly. I was really impressed by this. You're impressed film. by the tightly woven story, yeah? It is trying to be clever, and it is, it is for the most part. Does it, achieve, sorry, does it achieve Nolan-esque levels of complexity, do you think? I think it Not does, quite. doesn't it? Not quite. I think. But at the same time, it's a bit more human than Nolan's Enterprise. Because really, this is really about a mother's guilt Mm. and trying to to go back and fix things, isn't it? Well, it's also speculation on near death and after death, isn't it? Kind of, a little bit. Yes, so apparently I read that the taxi driver is 
he is really symbolic of the ferryman over the sticks. The ferryman, yes, yeah. So it is deeply symbolic. It's also very speculative. I, I you know, I mentioned maybe two, three or four episodes back, or maybe several episodes. I want to see more of those kind of movies they had of yore, where somebody is an imposter and people have to choose between the real person and the imposter. And we got <laughs> it in this movie along with Groundhog Day. So great, yeah. So bursting with ideas, isn't it? Really. I mean, on one level, it tries to be a kind of slasher movie. Yeah, and it's thrilling too. I did find it quite thrilling. But on another level, it's it's got horror elements, of course, and the idea of being trapped in this loop forever. Well, also the claustrophobia and confinement of, of liner ships works quite well, I think, for who's around the corner, doesn't it? You know. One interpretation of this is that she is in hell, right? For her since yes, this is her hell to relive these moments. Over or and she over could again. be in intensive care. And one one of the beautiful things about this is how the film builds Jess up. At the yeah. start, we expect her to be this dutiful, hard-working single mum. It turns out she's very human and perhaps a bit mean as a mum, potentially quite abusive as a mother. And we also see her, though, how she comes to the point during the film of being, from being a victim, or one of the victims, to being the instigator, to being the murderer. Yes. Or was that point of self-realisation? Is it all metaphorical? And the point of self-loathing, is that when she chooses suicide, perhaps? Or not? I don't know. Because is the car crash actually a real car crash? Well, obviously, you know, the ship isn't a real ship, is it? So is this all hallucinated in her mind? Or has she, is she just psychotic? Is she of two minds and therefore unable to resolve the two sides of her? So I thought it worked on so many levels, not just the kind of level of deja vu and and sort of guilt. I think guilt is the main... I think guilt is the main main floor of the cruise ship on which the whole there's so many metaphors but that's I think where it mainly functions but you can throw so many curveballs at this kind I don't think that's why it's exciting talking acting obviously Melissa George carries this film because she has the biggest and most complicated arc yeah to go through the biggest journey she's vulnerable she's very sultry okay she's kind of edgy she's kind of mysterious there's, you know, I mean, you never want, like, a psycho to be completely bland, do you? Although they often are. She is really quite an engaging and late, and latter stage, quite quite disturbing character, isn't she? I think she really pulls that off. Absolutely. I've got to give it an 8 for acting here. I'm going to give it 8.5. I don't think the support cast were as strong as she was, but she was just strong in herself and carried the whole cast, I think. Which member of the cast would you like to have been? <laughs> Yeah, maybe the seagulls. I think <laughs> seagulls I mean, don't fare well, Paul. No, they don't. But in terms of in terms of who I like to be in the not in the story, but who I like to look like, definitely Liam Hemsworth, without a doubt. I see. Okay, that's where we are. Is it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah just uh, I'd like to look like that. Yeah, I think Heather is the most enviable because she gets out of the whole. She gets loop, out early, doesn't she? Doesn't she? Uh, yeah. yeah, she checks out way before the horror starts. So. Let's talk about plot wow, and writing. fiercely ambitious, bursting with ideas, nearly all of which worked. Okay, uh, I like the triple, the triple kind of repeater here, so that she meets herself. The triangle. And, yeah. Yes, thank you. So she meets herself and thinks it's all solved, but no, she's only half seen half the puzzle. Uh, that's great. When that hits home, it's it's like ah oh, right, okay, and that really gives it another dimension. That otherwise, I think it's it a genuinely lack. fresh take on the it time is. loop. It is. And it's also nice, isn't it? You know, it's almost Hitchcock though this... as a device to make to make the film pan out to something more as well, isn't it? We know that particularly the references to Sisyphus, you know, the infinite regress, and the the fact that there's so many notes and so many seagulls and so many lockets. We know it's happening over we know and over it's happening, again. Yeah, but we can't quite see how, you know. And then it's revealed, yeah. and I think it's revealed. I think when uh, is it Sally who dies in a in a, in in a heap of her own body, basically? Yes. I think that's, that's, that's the point where it starts horrific. to coalesce. It really starts to gel, doesn't it? It's like, ah, oh, right, okay, there's three. There's a loop of three happening here. Brilliant. That and the fact that it's an allegorical kind of thing talking on a completely different level. What level okay. we don't know, lots of levels, you know. It's almost like Greek mythology with a storm and then all the metaphor that descends with the storm, you know. So fabulous. I loved it. And Like Greek tragedies, you know, the mother figure... A murderous mother figure. That's a very Greek idea, it is, isn't, isn't it? it? So I've got to, I've got to give it a nine bad. here, I think. Plot. I'm, I'm wild out by this plot. I'm going to give it 9.5. I really don't think we've seen anything quite so well plotted for quite some time. 
I don't know whether we do horror or time loopy whoopiness. Both, I think. Okay. Okay. Horror is where I think it falls down, or shall I say psychological thrill and horror. It's ratcheted just a little too high for too much of the movie for my tastes. And that might be a personal thing. I just think it becomes a little bit a metallic tang of a horror taste kind of thing. A haunted cruise ship is a good, it is haunt, good. Horror, haunted house thing, isn't it? Gramophones playing in the sun and wind yeah. by a beach is always very spooky and evocative at the same time. It's like, you know, the sounds of the past drifting out into... Look for horror. If you were watching this on a Halloween... Eerie. It wouldn't have been bad. I think it's got to be a seven or an eight for Yeah, horror. and props for achieving horror in the sunshine too. Time loopiness. Although you didn't get a score. What, what horror, score? I think, is where it kind of falls down in comparison to its other very, very strong aspects. I'm going to give it 6.5. So time loopiness. Loved it. Okay. I don't know what kind of flaws there are in its time loopiness. I don't no, it's really... it's too difficult to unpick, isn't it? I don't really care to examine it. It, it worked... You know. It's satisfying, that's the thing, isn't it? It's satisfying yes, intellectually. it worked, it satisfied, it entertained, and it was convincing upon cursory examination. That's all we need for a movie, isn't it? We don't think glaringly, obviously, kind of like, that doesn't work. I tell you something, unless, unless it's, it's Bill great and to watch it twice. It's great to watch it twice. Unless it's Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, where we don't mind a bit of silliness and a bit of non-sequiturism. Nothing stood out as glaringly, kind of like glitchy in the way they constructed this so time loopiness for me really works 8.5 how do you feel richard i'll certainly give it an eight yeah. there we go no question for an overall score ultimate thumbs up here lots and lots of thumbs up thumbs up where i don't know all the best places i'm gonna give it a nine out of ten richard that's a good score it is isn't it i was thinking for a movie for a movie that didn't do all that it did well terribly but that sometimes can be a recommendation for movies can't it if you like Something a little, not cerebral, but a little bit more thoughtful and a little bit left field. Can we call this a cult classic, maybe? Perhaps, because, it, well, I don't know. Cult classics usually have to do very bad at the box office and then do well later. But they often have to have very small budgets. And this didn't have a very small budget. It had a respectable budget of around 12 to $14 million, which... Well, they had to build a fake cruise ship. Uh, There's an area I thought was coastline. weak. Some of the green, not maybe not the green screen, I think it was maybe more projection shots where, you know, you've got the background as they're stood on board the small boat. Get, the first 10 minutes, you know, we get these headshots of them and what is obviously film play behind, or maybe CGI, I don't know how they did it. Some of that wasn't too convincing, I don't think. They made the cruise ship bits by building a cruise ship set on the coast so that they could get shots of the sea behind them. Did they not just uh, do like a small model, like one to one to two hundred? No, they built it so they could put the actors on it. Amazing! That is nuts. I will give it. It is an eight or a nine, I think. I, I'm going to give it an eight, I think, because I probably gave ten out of nine. So super! It's very good. It's much better than it has any right to be. Well done. I'm glad that we watched it, Paul. Are you? Yeah. Okay. Well, I was I was interested to know what else has Christopher Smith done. Not a lot. Okay, he did something called Creep. But this is way back in 2004. Okay, well, we can research that. But not much else. In fact, he's not been seen. This basically is next to last film, I think. Paul, it falls to me to give you a choice of film. Yeah. Go on. Hit me with it. I'm going to give you a choice of three films. Go on. The first is another time loop. Oh, it's wow. It's called The Infinite Man. I think Whoa. it's more of a rom-com. How many time loops have we done recently? Just, Wow. The Infinite Man. Okay. My next is a film called Totally Killer. Whoa. Right. And the final one is a bit of a mouthful, and I'm looking it up so I don't get it wrong. It's called Nandor Fodor and the Talking Mongoose. And please don't tell me it's a magical realist South Brazilian. No, it's based, on a, it's based on a true story about a talking mongoose in the Isle of Man that stars Simon Pegg. So, oh wow! Okay, you really—I'm torn. I'm torn. I know. Are any of these free on Netflix or Amazon Prime? We don't. Great question. I know that Nandor Fodor have just come on Amazon Prime, so I know that's safe. I kind of want to see Simon Pegg in his latter year glory, I guess, or maybe it's an early one of his. I don't know. So we're going to do Nandor Fodor and the Talking Mongoose. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to write that down before. because, well, <laughs> I'm going to spell it as best I can. 
It's spelt as you'd imagine, Nando. As in, as in Nando's chicken with an R. With an R. Yes. Fodor as in F-O-D-O-R. And the talking mongoose. Presumably the talking mongoose is going to sell his insurance, I imagine, or something. It's based on a true story. Nothing can happen in it, surely. Apart from it can achieve local celebrity through radio and TV interviews. I mean, is that it? It's going to be heartwarming. The Welsh mining town that bought the Butter Race horse. Is that kind of thing? <laughs> it's going to be. It's going to be heartwarming and British. Until the next time. Yes, thank you for listening. Do join us next time for episode fifty. Goodbye. Ciao for now. See you in the next one. Bye. Thank you.